I'm Gemma Schneider, and this is Where Are They Now? Where Are They Now? is a WHRB original series in which I take a deep dive into the insights and experiences of Harvard alumni who have made an impact. They are trailblazers who have touched the world in ways that they could never have planned for, expected, or imagined when they were students. And now, they are eager to tell their unique stories for the benefit of current students and our wider community of listeners out there. This series is made possible by One in a Billion Productions with Maple Chan, our production partner and sponsor. One in a Billion is a nonprofit educational media company whose mission is to foster Asian voices and deepen cross-cultural understanding through podcasts and film productions, blogs, and network events. One in a Billion's founder, Mabel Chan, is also a Harvard alum, class of 93, from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She'll be joining us as a regular commentator and co-host on the podcast. In this episode, I am speaking with Daniel Christopher Rogers, or DC Rogers. He earned a BA in English from Harvard College in 2012, and he has since become an award-winning writer, producer, and actor. DC is currently a story editor on the upcoming Netflix legal show, Partner Track. Previously, he was a staff writer on the CW drama In the Dark. Today, DC talks about his work on both of these shows and about the invigoration and challenges that come with working in a writer's room. He'll get into some of the rousing messages embedded within the scripts he's written. You may be surprised to hear about the path that brought DC to his action-fueled Hollywood life. It actually started with his intent to be a lawyer. We also talk about striking a healthy work-life balance and about how to grow from difficult, sometimes disappointing, work experiences. Before our interview, DC told me that he is a hard worker. You'll see this to be true as he talks about his work and accomplishments. But even beyond that, his lighthearted personality and natural brilliance radiate throughout the interview. And if you're like me, you'll be left feeling both inspired and amazed. Towards the end of this episode, our podcast contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan, will share her thoughts about this interview. A commentary about this question. How do you know what you want to do before and after Harvard? Hi, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into kind of how you got where you are, I want to hear just about the day-to-day. What's a day in the life of Daniel Christopher Rogers? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, so every day is a little different. Right now, because I'm in a writer's room, my day means that I spend four to six hours on a Zoom meeting working with other writers to break story um, on the season that we're currently working on. So the first season of my current show, which is a a Netflix show called Partner Track, which is coming out in 2022. And then outside of working in the room, um, I, because I'm in development a lot, uh, I also have other things that I'm working on. So uh, yesterday, for example, once the room wrapped up, I had um, uh, just some writing. I had to do a pitch document that I have to turn in for um, a pilot rewrite that I'm working on. And then somewhere in there, I sleep and eat and bathe myself and work out, you know, you know how that goes. Self-care. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So Partner Track is the show that you're working on. It's a legal show. Um, And I know that when you were in college, you initially had ambitions of going to law school. Um, Has that kind of intersected with your your work on the show at all? Uh, Yeah, a little bit. I mean, only because... 
Well, so the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college, I interned at a law firm. So I got to know what that lifestyle is like, uh, what it's like being a big law lawyer, you know, the types of stress that they're under, the types of cases that they take on, um, how boring it can be, uh, the way they relate to one another. And we do have somebody who used to be a lawyer in our room who can do it much, much better than I can. But yeah, have, having had the experience of being pre-law definitely does inform uh, certain aspects of, of how I approach the top subject material. Yeah, I would think just being in that environment and kind of seeing the interpersonal aspects of being a lawyer. So now I do want to talk more about going from pre-law to, to where you are now. How did you initially um, start thinking maybe you don't want to be a lawyer? Sure. Well, so I think my I think my college essay I wrote about being a Supreme Court justice, which shows you just how far I've come from who I was when I was 17 and 18 years old. I was pre-law basically all the way through my senior year in college and got as far as taking the LSAT and got a pretty decent score on the on the test. And that was kind of my wake up call. That was when I started thinking, okay, well, what law schools do I want to go to? What type of law do you I ultimately think I want to practice. And I started taking a step back and realizing I don't know any lawyers that are happy, or at least I don't know lawyers that are happy the way I want to be happy, where they kind of have more control over the direction of their life. And they're incredibly passionate about what they do. And there's a creativity to, to how they solve problems. And so I started taking a step back and asking myself, is this really the direction you want to go down? And I think somewhere around January 2012, I guess this would have been, I decided, you know, I don't think this is the right thing for me to do. Um, so instead I started thinking, well, what else can I do with myself? And that is how I ended up in like the bridge between college and uh, entering the entertainment industry where I spent a few years working on a marketing firm in San Francisco. You took the LSAT. So that's so far along. Was there <laughs> any part of you that was like, oh my God, I went this far. Like I can't back out now. Or it's even harder to back out now? Uh, no, actually. Um, I think that part of me would have been my parents, but they were very supportive of me doing what I wanted to do as long as I had a plan. And the fact the fact that I changed my mind and then was able to find a job, I think, was what reassured them. But yeah, there was no part of me that was like, you took the outside. Do you think that this was a waste of your time? Um, the 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 skills that I learned um, to take the LSAT shockingly still pop up when I'm breaking story and figuring out uh, logic problems in in stories and, and issues around, you know, would a character do this, would a character not do this, um, and, and how do we get from point A to point X, uh, and these are the holes we have to plug. Like, a lot of that is actually very applicable to, to breaking story in a, in a writer's room, so... Yeah, I don't. I find yeah. that I find that so fascinating. I think it also speaks to the fact that, like, it, it. I basically the way that I prefaced my question was like, oh, so it feels like the LSAT studying all that was like a waste. But you know, maybe you sacrifice it to pursue something that'll make you happier. But it wasn't a waste, and it kind of shows how like every experience you have, even if it's not the path that you think you're going to be taking, could be valuable. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, every experience leads you to where you are now and informs the decisions that you make and informs the skill set that you develop. So I, I don't think that it was a waste at all. So you also mentioned that your admissions essay was about, you know, being a Supreme Court <laughs> justice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like 
there must have been a point where I've had like similar, like whatever, but I think it's, it's so, it's funny because it, it aligns with when we, when I spoke to you earlier, you told me that a lot of your work is kind of on themes of overachievement, hard work. Um, and so it kind of, it, it reminded me of that, but I think something that kind of branches off of that is you, you've always had high expectations of yourself, um, including, I guess, whether it was when you wanted to be a lawyer and, you know, now as well, how, how did that manifest in college where um, there's probably your internal pressure and kind of the social environment, the academic environment is already one of high pressure? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I'd say, so, so <laughs> it's funny, I, re I remember this, my college roommate, um, Tyler, he ended up graduating summa cum laude and went on to Harvard Law School. And uh, I was always a little intimidated by him. Uh, and so I felt like if Tyler's studying, I should be studying. Uh, and so uh, there was there were a lot of times in college where I would take classes that I knew were difficult, uh, where the professor, like I remember I took a class called the classic phase of the novel and the professor Philip Fisher told us at the start, I'm expecting you to stay in on weekends to read. If you don't feel like you can do that, then maybe this isn't the class for you. And for some reason I said, bring it, bring it on. So I think your response is notable to me because it was kind of like an I'll show you response. <laughs> um, is that something that is kind of like characteristic of you um, that you, you, you have that response to doubt? Yeah, I would definitely say that kind of bring it on. Like um, I'll show you, I love a challenge uh, is a huge part of who I am especially when it comes to things that other people might find intimidating. I, I just love taking them on. I love that. Um, so I guess another thing in relation to that is, um, and this also taps into what you were talking about earlier with taking on a lot. Um, what are the benefits of that? And what do you think might be the worst elements of that for you? Oh, interesting. So, I mean, a benefit is that I'm, I'm, I never shy away from a difficult challenge and I love tackling things that other people might find too intimidating. And, it, you know, it's really, really difficult to scare me, I guess, with the, with the idea that something is too hard to achieve. And then the challenge I think is just, you know, it, it takes time and it takes effort that I could be putting into other things. I could be putting it into um, hobbies or I could be putting it into um, spending more time with friends or family and, that work-life balance does become a little bit more difficult to strike when you're taking on um, tough projects. Um, you know, I, I think I missed some really fun parties when I was in college because I was reading too much. And I think uh, even today I'm missing out on like some, some more social stuff because instead of going out on weekends, I've decided that I have writing that I have to get done. So it's a bit of a trade-off for sure. Has it become easier for you to kind of strike that balance? That's an interesting question. I would say I've become more comfortable with the fact that um, there are sacrifices I have to make. And I am also highly aware of what those sacrifices are and more easily able to, you know, now that I've reached a certain level of success to be able to say, you know, right now, this is my time to be with my family. Uh, so please don't bother me. And, and figuring out how to set aside that time has become easier as I've gotten older, for sure. And what about the nature of those trade-offs has changed since college? So in college, it could be like parties or, 
or um, probably, you know, hanging out with friends in the dining hall, how does it kind of look different as you get older? What are the, what are the trade-offs? Yeah. It's, it's so funny when you asked me that question, the immediate thought that sprung into my head was in college, they felt a little bit more frivolous. Uh, whereas now they're more serious, like, you know, my, my parents are getting older and wanting to spend more time with them uh, is running up against the fact that, you know, the production company is expecting a draft of this sometime this week. So do you have time to drive home for Father's Day? So, so I would say the stakes are becoming higher, right? Like, uh, I'm, I'm an adult now and um, the, I'm not playing in like somebody else's sandbox. I'm playing in the sandbox of my own life. Yeah, I think I think that's how I would characterize it. Are there any moments, specific ones etched into your memory that are either moments where you're so happy you kind of pushed away a work responsibility and embraced one of those other values of yours or um, the opposite where you remember doing something for work and wishing you hadn't missed something? Yeah, so the the thing that's immediately coming to mind is this past year, my sister uh, graduated with a math with a doctorate. She would kill me if I said master's. She got a doctorate from Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, and my entire family decided to spend a week on Martha's Vineyard, which would mean because I was in a room actively, I was going to have to work remotely from Martha's Vineyard if I wanted to be with my family. And it would have been a lot easier for me to say, "I'm sorry, I, I can't do this. I've got work to do." But instead, I made the decision that I was just going to figure out a way to do both. So I found a room in the house with good internet connection and a desk that I could work out of uh, and brought along my laptop and just spent those four to six hours in that room working. And otherwise I was outside playing with my family, going to the beach, playing board games and, and hanging out. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that I was able to make that, make that balance work out. Uh, it did mean, you know, I didn't have time to work on side projects for about uh, two weeks. Uh, in addition to uh, working on the show, I think it would have just been too much to try to balance all of those things. Um, but I'm really, really grateful because I got to spend time with my sister and celebrating and I got to spend time with my niece uh, and my parents and my entire family was together for the first time really since quarantine started. So that was a really great experience. It makes me think so much of something for me this past summer, like very similar experience where I had, it was commencement for the Crimson mm. and I was working on editing a bunch of pieces and I was away staying with my uncle and my cousins and they like it was the, our last night away with them we were in Georgia and they wanted to go to dinner and I was really 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 close to just ditching dinner and finishing editing because I had to by that night and I ended up bringing my laptop to a restaurant <laughs> <laughs> and they all they all got like wine and stuff I didn't do any of that because like well number one I'm, I'm 20 number two, uh, <laughs> number two um, I'm working so but like Strangely enough, I enjoyed the dinner and I got it done. And it's really not typical of me to like, usually I feel like I would just stay but I but home, but I didn't. Um, I wonder if that has to do with like the fact that I'm realizing kind of during COVID, like everything's portable. You can, you can, you know, like that's kind of changed my way of thinking about where and how I can do work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, um, obviously it would have been unfeasible for me to go to Martha's Vineyard um, in a pre-COVID time because I would have needed to physically be in a room. Uh, and so, you know, being able to teleconference in using Zoom and using a, a, a laptop made my life a lot easier and, and that balance a lot easier. 
and and you know I went on several trips throughout this this uh, room where you know I was able to to be out of town and still be doing my job and it just really made a huge difference. I don't think that the Zoom rooms are going to last for very long, but I'm glad that I was able to take advantage of this while it, while it was happening. I also want to talk more about the writers' room. Um, from the outside, it seems so cool and fascinating. And I, I honestly, I feel like I'm pretty naive as to what goes on in a writer's room. I tried before this interview to, like I was looking up like time-lapse of a writer's room <laughs> to try to get sense, but I feel like those videos didn't do it justice. Can you tell me a little bit about the experience, about the collaboration, about the hardest parts of being in a writer's room, um, the development of your ideas? I, where to start? Um, so on a basic level, a writer's room for a TV show is a group of, you know, sometimes one writer, sometimes seven or more writers, uh, the room I'm in has seven, who get together every day and uh, break story, which is they figure out, you know, what happens in uh, this TV series. Um, usually at the start of it, you're figuring out what happens over the course of the entire season. Uh, and then once you have that season arc down, then you start breaking each individual episode down. You know, every day in the room is different. Uh, some days, literally what you're doing is figuring out what two characters' relationship to one another is like and how it progresses over the course of the entire season. Um, other days, you're doing a run-through of the plot of an episode trying to figure out, you know, are there any holes that we've missed? Are there any things that need to be plugged in? It, it, it really varies. Uh, the every room is going to be different because um, every room is very dependent on the person who's running it. I know In the Dark is is one show that you were a staff writer for. Sure. Tell us about the show or working on it, yeah. Yeah, it was a it was my first staff writing job. Um, In the Dark was a CW drama, uh, 13 episode order. Um, and how do I, how do I say this? Uh, every, Every, every first job comes with um, unique challenges. One of the challenges you have to figure out is how do I work for this person and give them what they're looking for? Um, and because I tend to play devil's advocate in a room, it's always a tenuous position to be in um, because some people react positively to that, like my current bosses do, and other people, um, it's not as helpful as being a person who just always helps build up ideas. And unfortunately, I felt myself in, in a ladder situation situation on in the dark um so that was that was a bit of a struggle but one of the things that i appreciated about that show was you know uh the showrunner was outside of uh, certain aspects very supportive um and um very caring about the development of her staff writers uh she had five of them on the first season which is a huge number um and in addition to that um I was able to go to set and actually produce an episode of the show, which was uh, basically unheard of for a staff writer. And I was able to be like the only writer on set producing an episode. While I was doing that, I also met um, someone who has become a very close friend of mine, Clara Ranovich, who was the director of the episode. She and I um, just became really fast friends and we worked together really, really well. And I hope someday that we get to work together again. So yeah, you know, first jobs mixed bag, but in general, I would say it was a, a positive experience and obviously put me on the path toward where I am now and a trajectory toward eventually becoming a showrunner. So very grateful for it. So you spoke a little about the ups and downs of the job. Um, 
I know that one instance you you've cited as one of the hardest instances was when you had a difficult boss. What was that experience? Um, you know, in the abstract, just like. I think, I think part of the difficulty was that I was coming into an environment that was very foreign to me. You know, I'm, I'm a writer and I was coming into a more development uh, environment and uh, orienting myself around the demands and strictures of, of that type of work was kind of difficult. Um, and then on top of that, the, the boss I had was just very demanding and uh, I, I struggled to adjust to their style. Um, and in the in the end, it wasn't the best fit for either of us. Uh, I think they needed someone with more experience than I had, unfortunately. Uh, and you know, we we ended up parting on not the best of terms, but it was informative because uh, every writer, I think, should have some development experience just so they can understand where executives are coming from. Uh, and I learned so much about like the things that go into a decision around considering a piece of creative. Uh, whether it's a script or, or a pitch or whatever, like what goes into uh, how they make those decisions is, is really helpful. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned early on that you feel like the exec or the boss should have hired someone with more experience, but I don't know if I agree with that because isn't it kind of their job to take you under their wing and like give you that experience? Like everyone has the potential for growth. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Like I think on some level uh, I could have approached the job with more seriousness and actually gotten up to speed faster. Um, but I also think I was at a weird place in my career where like things in my writing were just starting to take off. Uh, and I was stuck trying to balance, you know, how do I take meetings while still being on a, a really demanding desk uh, and being a, a, an assistant for a boss who's stretched really thin and desperately needs an assistant who's just on top of the ball. Um, and sometimes I think I'm back on that and wonder, you know, what would it have been like if I had just said, I'm going to take the next year of my life and just devote myself to becoming the best assistant I can be and understanding how this world works. You know, I do think on some level, uh, that would have helped a lot. Yeah. Do you ever wish that you took that route? I think it speaks a little to the, to the concept that we were talking about before, kind of the trade-offs you have to make. And it sounds like you went in the direction of just caring for yourself. You know, I feel like I never regret that choice. Um, I, I wonder, do you, do you still ever look back at it and think you made the wrong choice? Um, what an interesting question. I think I would be lying if I said that I don't, because sometimes I do. Sometimes I do look back on it and think, you know, what would it have been like if I had really spent a year, year and a half learning the ins and outs of this system, not the least because it's a side of the industry that I just don't know as well as television. You know, how would that affect the way that I approach my job now uh, would have been an interesting question. Um, that being said, I don't think ultimately my, 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 my ultimate goals have been that affected by the fact that I didn't stay in that position for as long as I would have liked, or as long as I thought I was going to, you know, my ultimate goal is to become a showrunner that writes movies every once in a while. Uh, and I think I can still do that without having had that experience. Uh, it just means that I don't necessarily have the contacts that I would have had, uh, had I stayed in that position. Um, and, you know, I have a few less gray hairs than I would have developed otherwise. <laughs> So making contacts, is that a big, I'm sure that's a big thing. 
in LA, yeah, Hollywood. Huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's its own beast. Uh, I'm still not great at it um, though. You know, things are kind of looking up and I, I know how to use it a little bit more strategically. Uh, and um yeah, I mean, ultimately networking is how I found my first manager and my first agent. So I can't say that, or I guess my second agent. So I can't say that um, I don't know how to do it. It's just, you know, it, it's a grind for awesome. sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's how you met your manager and your agent. So at the time that you're developing kind of your, you know, meeting people and you're growing in that way and, and kind of this, this networking sense, you're also um, simultaneously, you need to grow as a writer. And I think a challenge for a lot of writers, myself included, when I think about just my writing is like, you get to a point where you think I'm a really good writer now. And then a few years go by and you realize like you reread what you write and it's like, wait, this is not as good as I thought. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, How did I write this? Does that still happen to you at all yeah all the time that happens when i go back and reread things that i wrote you know years ago or things that i wrote last week i'm like how did i get away with writing that uh why didn't anyone tell me how bad i am i think part of it is also i'm the type of writer who uh thinks if i'm not reading other writers whose work i find inspiring then i'm not doing my job so I'm constantly reading new material and constantly comparing myself to like the greats in the industry and constantly asking myself, how did Noah Hawley do that? Or how did Vince Gilligan do that? And why can't I do that? And recognizing that everybody has a different skill set um, and they probably view their writing the same way I view my writing, which is, you know, it's somewhat flawed and there are things that they wish they could change, but they ran out of time. So I know we, we already spoke a little bit about how themes of, overachievement or, or, you know, being a high achieving person, being a workaholic, how those permeate your work. I want to talk a bit about the other themes that you engage with in your writing. I know we spoke earlier and you talked about how a lot of them are, are personal. So what is that like to, um, does that help the writing process? Is it cathartic for you? Yeah. Uh, I always find it interesting. I'm a fairly private person and writing on some level should be cathartic, right? It should be proceeding from a personal place. Uh, and I, I find that push and pull of my need to keep a part of myself to myself uh, and also making sure that people can relate to what my characters are going through and therefore needing to put some of myself into my writing, uh, <laughs> particularly difficult. You know, themes of, I'm a gay man, and so themes of queerness definitely make their way into my writing. Uh, I come from a fairly affluent uh, African-American family, and so themes of what's it like to be a Black person coming from money or a Black person coming from, you know, a place of privilege resonate throughout my, my writing as well. And then on some level, there's this question of, like, what does it mean to be Black? What Like, what does it it's essentially a theme that I, I like grappling with this, like there are as many different ways to be Black as there are Black people in the United States and uh, as there are Black people in the world, uh, just as there are as many ways of being queer as there are queer people in the world. Um, and so, you know, how do I represent that in conversation between my different characters? You know, one of the things that I always struggle with is, am I telling the most nuanced story possible? Uh, and sometimes I fail at that. Sometimes I, I tell a story that's not as nuanced and is a little bit naive or a little bit uh, dated 
uh, and somebody has to point it out to me and I have to ask myself, okay, well, what is, what is the 2021, 2022 version of this conversation look like? Um, and it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a thing. Like you, you've got to constantly be pushing yourself and asking yourself, am I, am I really staying true to what the contemporary conversation uh, looks like around these issues? What story have you told um, that is based on some of those personal themes and experiences that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, so uh, a pilot that I wrote a few years back called Canaan um, deals with most of the themes that I mentioned just now. It deals with, you know, there are so many different ways to be Black. Uh, the primary character is a queer Black man and he brings his white boyfriend home to uh, rural Georgia, which is its own thing. Um, and then he comes from a very affluent family. Uh, and there's this question of, you know, how do we use our privilege to make the world around us a better place? And are we really serving the people in our community properly? That's a really big theme that has resonated in my family as well. This question of service and how do we serve people and how do we use what we've been given to make, um, make a positive impact. So yeah, that that's definitely a project that I'm proud of. Uh, it's probably the most personal and kind of um, it was, as you said before, weirdly cathartic to to write it and, and put so much of myself and my own family on the page. I think even the the all the themes that you're tapping into, just from the teaser of Keenan, um, it 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 felt very simple. I, I read Keenan for everyone listening, um, <laughs> but it felt. It felt very symbolic to me. Um, can you talk about the teaser and how you developed the idea for it and what it means to you, but also the various interpretations of it? Yeah. Um, so the teaser of Canon for for um, anyone who hasn't read, which I assume is the majority, if not all of the people listening to this, uh, it takes place like on a backcountry road. It's um, my main character, Ari, and his boyfriend, um, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, driving in rural Georgia and they get pulled over by a cop and Ari is at the wheel and uh, his boyfriend thinks that the cop pulled him over because he's black. Uh, and then Ari takes out his uh, wallet and shows him his ID and the cop immediately recognizes that Ari is uh, D. Blewett's son uh, and th starts treating him with more respect and actually more respect than he would give to a white driver. Um, and that's actually born out of like personal experience. My oldest sister had a moment like that where she was driving uh, home one day, one year for Christmas. She got pulled over uh, and uh, initially the cop was a little hostile to her and then they read her driver's license, saw that she was Ramona Rogers' daughter and immediately started treating her with more respect and helped her figure out how to get home. Um, and I had always wanted to do something with that. Um, this idea that, you know, being connected to the right Black person can get you uh, the get you better treatment from people in authority. And that's kind of where the teaser was born out of. When you are putting together a script, and I know part of the process, my basic understanding is you show scripts and people buy it or they don't, people get rejection, it's inevitable. Um, so when people say no, what do those no's mean to you? And is that complicated by the fact that sometimes your writing is personal? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think at this point I've become so inured to no. Um, 
it's just part of the industry, right? It's just part of, of being an artist is you have to put your art out there and it's not always going to be for everybody. Um, so sometimes, you know, you, you ask somebody, do you want to work on this with me? Or do you want to read this? Uh, do you want to, do you want to help me make this a reality? Uh, and the answer is going to be no. It's mostly going to be no, at least in my experience. Um, and, you know, it sucks. It sucks not to uh, have everybody love you. I think on some level, every creative wants people to love them and, and approve of them. Um, but I do what I can not to take it personally and recognize that people have a variety of reasons for not wanting to uh, take on a project. Often uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with me or the quality of my writing and everything to do with uh, things that are happening behind the scenes that I will never be made privy to. Um, so, you know, it, rejection is part of the job. It's something that I've gotten used to. Um, it, the fact that it's my personal experience, uh, I mean, I could take or, or leave the fact that um, sometimes it, it, it's stories that are really personal to me. Um, it, it sucks when it's something that's a little more personal as opposed to something that's just, you know, uh, a, um, a project that I'm writing on spec uh, or an open writing assignment. It, it, it does sting a little bit worse, um, but ultimately it, it's affecting the same side of you, which is the side that wants to be left. And, you know, you got to learn how to not take it personally and roll with the punches and hope that the next project you bring to them is something that they like to. So I know that you do a lot of speaking engagements. You're really interested in mentorship. Mm. What messages do you try to impart upon young people who are aspiring or, or who, are, who are hoping to make it in this industry, other industries that are tough to succeed in and, you know, maybe not your straight linear path. Yeah. So I think we touched on a bit of it earlier today uh, where like, and you, you mentioned right now, like this idea of a linear path, like I did not have and still do not have a linear path toward uh, my ultimate goal of becoming a showrunner. Um, and I don't think anybody in the industry can really say, yeah, I had a straight shot from, you know, being a writer's PA toward becoming a showrunner. Everybody dips and bobs and weaves a little bit. So being okay with the fact that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty is definitely one thing. Another thing that I always tell my students is that uh, a goal like the one that I'm working toward and hopefully that you're working toward as well is really, really hard. And um, I don't want to sugarcoat that for them. I don't want them to come in kind of with their eyes closed and not be prepared for the fact that they're going to have to work really fucking hard. Um, natural talent is a given at a certain level in my industry. And after that, it's who do you know? It's uh, how hard are you working and um, how, uh, how easy is it for other people to work with you? So learning how to collaborate without allowing your ego to cloud your judgment is something that's really important as well. So we talked about your mentorship. We talked about um, what you would say to others. If you could, my last question for you, is if you could go back to the law student um, and tell him just like one thing, what would it be? Um, wow. Um, if I could go back and, and talk to my college self. Um, hmm. 
I think I would say uh, it's so weird. Uh, don't take it as seriously as you're currently taking it, by which I don't mean don't work as hard as you're working, but allow yourself the ability to think it's going to work out. Because um, if you can approach it from a place of confidence, if you can approach your career from a place of uh, I'm going to get there, uh, it's just a matter of you know how long is it going to take me to get there. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot more than if you're putting your so much pressure on yourself to get there as quickly as possible. I think everyone could take that advice, whether it's you from how many years ago? Let's let's not answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> whether it's young Daniel Christopher Rogers or any current student or literally any young person, I think. Um, it's great advice. So thank you for being here. Thank you for all of your words of wisdom. Um, I'm so glad that we got to talk today. Yeah, same. It's been a pleasure being a guest here. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what y'all do next. Thanks so much to DC Rogers for joining us today. Now it's time for a few words from our contributing commentator and co-host, Mabel Chan of One in a Billion, our production partner and sponsor of Where Are They Now? Hi, Gemma. After listening to your interview with DC Rogers, I want to share some thoughts about this question. How do you know what you want to do before and after Harvard? Remember DC said he wrote about being a Supreme Court justice in his college essay when he was 17, 18 years old? Well, he described himself as pre-law all the way until his senior year in college. But after taking the LSAT and getting what he described as a decent score, he asked himself, what are my dream law schools? What kind of law do I want to practice? And then he hit a pause button. Why? He knew no lawyer who was happy in the way that he wanted to be happy. He clearly had a strong sense of self, which was probably the result of his summer college internship at a law firm. He was exposed to the work and lifestyle of big-time lawyers, but instead of being impressed, he had a hard time seeing himself happy being one of them. His vision of happiness and his self-image would lead him back to creative writing. DC had loved writing since elementary school, but he sort of strayed from that during college. Yet ultimately, he circled back to writing. That is a big moment of reckoning. That kind of pivotal moment in one's life reminds me of my own turning points before and after Harvard. Like DC, I too had considered going to law school after a few years as a television journalist. I'd fantasized about the life and work as a prosecutor. Maybe I'd watch too much TV and admire the courtroom drama where the prosecutor usually wins and put the bad guys behind bars. But unlike DC, my LSAT score wasn't that high. I was on a wait list for NYU, my dream law school. Meanwhile, I was offered an on-air reporter job at a TV station in Hong Kong where I had interned two summers and loved the experience. So that was easy. I went where the door was open, took the offer, and returned to Hong Kong, my hometown. But after four years of reporting, mostly breaking news stories in Hong Kong and elsewhere in Asia, I hit a career high and an emotional low. I'd cover a major news event in China that made me realize how little I knew about the history and politics of China. So I decided to apply to Harvard's graduate program in East Asian Studies and thought I would focus my study on China. 
but my advisor, Professor Rod McFarquhar, urged me to study Japan and Japanese language as well, because Japan was a rising power in Asia at the time. And he wanted me to have more career options by expanding my Asia knowledge beyond China. Over time, I got so immersed in academic reading, research, and writing that at one point during my graduate studies, I considered leaving the TV journalism world for a career in research and writing at a think tank. I'd applied to several big firms that I knew might be impressed by my Harvard education. I was so wrong. I got no response. As it turned out, policy research and writing for a think tank isn't something I could just switch to after getting a master's degree, not even from Harvard. That was simply not enough. That kind of work requires a PhD at the minimum, and that's usually preceded by many years of writing about Asia and getting published in big name publications. So you see, I was pursuing a path away from my domain in television and journalism, and no one took me seriously. That's how I knew it wasn't the right thing for me. The doors weren't open to me. In hindsight, I'm glad I didn't insist on going down that direction because it would not have been a good fit. I returned to my passion in television and storytelling, and eventually got my first job after Harvard at CBS News. If I could go back to my Harvard graduate student self, I wouldn't change a thing about my efforts to try and land a job at the think tank. Yes, I was rejected, but no, it was not a futile attempt. I learned a lot about how that industry looks at people. I've also learned to follow where the doors are open and let those opportunities speak to me. I'd be curious to hear how you respond to open and closed doors in your life. Send me your thoughts. I love feedback. This has been Where Are They Now, produced by myself, Gemma Schneider at WHRB News in Cambridge, in collaboration with One in a Billion Productions with Mabel Chan. The music for our show was created by Dash Chin of WHRB News. You can also learn more about our podcast partner and sponsor, One in a Billion Productions, by checking out oneinabillionvoices.org or Mabel's podcast, One in a Billion, an interview show about Asian culture and society, one person at a time, on Apple iTunes, PRX, or SoundCloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Where Are They Now? Learn more about our podcast and catch up on old episodes by visiting our website, whrb.org. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or PRX.